And when you're really small, um, sort of, you know, these high risks actually make you stronger. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text bad hire, spell it out, B-A-D-H-I-R-E to 33444. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Manny Medina, who is the CEO of Outreach.io. And Outreach is a tool that helps automate sales tasks and frees you to sell more. And I'm a happy user of Outreach, and I I would highly recommend it to people that are in sales. Um, Manny, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Um, we'd love to hear a little more about uh, you know your background and how it got you to to where you are in terms of outreach, and then uh, we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we were we were we had a previous startup in um, that was in the recruiting space, and one of the things that we noticed was that in recruiting, it's very important to follow up, but to to follow up um, and sound human every time you talk to a person. Um, in recruiting, is is it's a business of matchmaking between two entities, uh, an employer and a, and, a, and, a, and a potential candidate. And you have to sound human, but you also have to be very, very diligent about, about you know, being out there in the communication and following up. So we built a tool that allows recruiters to sort of scale that communication aspect um, and remain and retain the human touch. So as we were sort of building that out, we realized that this tool is actually more efficient in the sales realm, meaning you can now as a salesperson, you can go out and touch as many leads as you can while sounding natural, while sounding um, genuine and continue to follow up with those leads until they convert. And that's why that's what that was the impetus behind behind outreach. As we sort of step back and look at the at the at the, at the whole sequence of touches that you have to do for getting a, a, a lead or, or an inbound lead or an outbound lead all the way to conversion, you realize that it's all communication and it's all communication and automating that those as much as many pieces of, of that communication sequences are, are what's going to differentiate a good team from the bad ones. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, for us, I mean, you know, we, we have follow-up has always been a pain, right? You know, even though we use tools like Boomerang and things like that to bring the emails back, you still forget to follow up. So, I mean, with outreach, just from personal experience, you know, I've been able to get our, our SDR responses to, you know, 15%, which is pretty decent. And in some cases, I mean, when we do like these interview requests, you know, 35% and in some cases, even 96% too. So um, that, this is all a testament to outreach and it's all about the follow-up. Um, so um, appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the team at outreach? I, I think you guys have a unique perspective on that, right? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, thanks, thanks for asking that because we, we are, um, at a core, we are a product team. Um, and, and one of the things that we, that we spend a lot of time going through are sort of the details of the day to day operation of our customers. 
Um, and our customers, every what we have found out is that every single sales team is unique in the way they do things. Some of them, you know, are b- very bent or on on using email and automation and hitting a lot of leads. Some others are very bent on being very manual and tactical and sort of using automation only when it makes sense. Um, so we endeavor to build a tool that sort of addresses both. And uh, the the only way you can do that is if you have a team that is absolutely dedicated to just to, to to sort of you know product and user experience and, and make that the best. Um, so the, the team is actually comprised mostly of engineers. So um, it was only later in our, in our life cycle that we brought on salespeople and that we brought on um, and that we sort of started growing the customer success piece. But at the end of the day, our team is mostly around sort of building a beautiful product and then being as responsive as we can to our customer needs. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that we actually have three releases per week, and most of the issues we resolve within hours. And it's mostly, you know, because our team is just, you know, super focused on making the tool, you know, the best tool out there. Now, what does that mean exactly to have, you know, what what are the implications of, of doing three releases per week, just from someone that doesn't have a product focused background? Yeah. So what that means is that um, you are setting up in, in the development world, just like in the sales world, you have sort of a cadence of development. Um, and what you try to do is you sort of try to bite big projects, but you also try to have intermediate releases for those big projects and interim releases of the, of the large sort of undertakings. So having a, 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 you know, having three releases a week, that means that the site literally gets updated three times a week. Uh, you may not see it. And what you will see is a little, you know, icon popping in the top saying, please refresh this page. And what that means is that a new release of the software was put in and it could be a bug fix or it could be, um, um, a feature, it could be like a little thing, like a lot of people request little nits um, in the template language or in the, in the way you track something else or, you know, some icon is looking a little weird. And, you know, the ability to please those little requests go a long way. You know what I mean? Like if you come in and be like, you know, I wish that this thing was on the left and not on the right for these five reasons. We look at it and if it makes sense, we'll do it right away. You, you see what I mean? And that will leave you highly satisfied because, you you know, you, now you feel like you have a hand at the product. And the, and the customers feel like they're, you know, very, very deeply bought in and part of sort of the team, if that makes sense. Got it. No, I, I have to hand it to you. I mean, um, you know, when, you know, when I reached out to you guys, you guys were super responsive and, it, you know, the situation was even elevated all the way to you and you responded personally. So I think that personal touch definitely helps in terms of, you know, getting more advocates. So appreciate that. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of, you know, number of users today, I mean, where are you guys at today? So we have over 180 orgs, meaning accounts, in our system. Um, we grow that number about 20% every week. Um, wow. And it's a combination of about you know, 80% outbound and 20% inbound. Funnily enough, we actually don't have a big marketing, and that's why we flew under the radar for so long. Uh, we're, we are mostly an outbound engine, but we... We get a lot of referrals from our own customers, you know, telling their friends that I'm, you know, I'm using outreach, et cetera. It's funny. I just shot two people your way and they, they, they've been sending me like, you know, emails raving about the product. So that's just a testament to how good, I, I mean, till this year, I haven't heard of outreach till just recently. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of big things, uh, I mean, 20% growth week over week is insane to me. Um, so, I mean, what did you do exactly when you first started out to acquire, let's just say your first, you know, 10 customers? Um, I did a number of things. So my first step. Um, I, I geek out. I geek out a little bit on on sort of prospecting tools. It's a thing that I sort of you know um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. So 
Um, my first move was to, after we got a, 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 we, we went out and we sort of did a lot of LinkedIn prospecting. Um, we used Twofer and all this to sort of start, you know, guessing emails, et cetera. Um, but then, um, I met Jason from DataNize mm-hmm. and when I got DataNize, DataNize allowed me to do a, a, you know, you know, rougher cuts based on technology. So for instance, um, one of the things that stand up the most about outreach is our ability to have bi-directional sync with Salesforce. What that means is that you can update, um, out, outreach can update any field within the lead or the, or the account, et cetera, in Salesforce when something changes. So if you reply, I can go, I can go ahead and update the lead status and say, Eric has replied, um, moving forward to the, to the opportunity stage. So, um, because of that, it allowed me to go in and, and sort of sort out like, you know, all the Pardo users, because you know that if you have Pardo, you have Salesforce. And if you have Salesforce, you're probably a good customer for me. So I used to started using data nice extensively and that allowed me to sort of be very targeted on this, on the sales stack that mm-hmm. a particular customer was using and sort of make a pitch that accommodated that stack. So that was sort of my first, um, um, big, big sort of prospecting, prospecting tool was, was actually data nice. Um, after that, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, people in the Bay Area that, that do, you know, prospecting for a living and, and the ability to sort of either, you know, buy list or exchange list or, you know, just hustle it out um, allowed me to sort of get a hold of a bunch of, a bunch of really high quality names and companies, et cetera, that, that you know, that, that sort of made the bulk of our outbound efforts. Um, and going forward, we're trying to, you know, look for partnerships with, with people who do lead generation for a living. Um, because you know our products are relatively complementary. We're not in the lead, you're not in the legion space, but we provide tools for you to sort of grow your legion. Um, so, so that's sort of you know how we're thinking going forward. We're going to grow our uh, revenue. Yeah, that's so smart. You know, and I think this tool doesn't just apply for sales. I mean, it applies to you know people that are maybe even you know agencies out there that are looking to promote their content, whatever it is that requires follow up. I mean, this is it. So I, I think you've you've come up with a great name around it. But um, you know, I I don't think we've really outlined. You know, we've kind of skidded around it. But you know, what what is the ultimate benefit of outreach? Just so the audience is crystal clear on on, on what it does. Yeah. So the the outreach allows you to sort of put your cadence. They define what your cadence of touches is going to be and put it in rails and sort of put it in a, in a track and then see the performance of the cadence as a cadence, not as a, not as a series of templates. So when you want to opti- when you want to sort of um, optimize and automate the number of touches that you're going to be doing with a particular set of prospects, um, outreach is by far the most if, the, the tool that gives you the most efficiency and, and B, it, it gives you the most insights. And mostly because the online A-B testing allows you to quickly determine how a template or a piece of language performs within the sequence. The second thing is that it allows you to, to see the differentiation between manual and automated emails, right? So if I'm, if I'm able to, or, or a manual and automated touches, for instance. So in outreach, you can create a, a, a cadence of touches that, are, that includes both automated follow-ups and manual follow-ups, such as, you know, go and connect with this person in LinkedIn, go send this person a tweet, um, go and, 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 and craft an email that, you know, in, insert some pieces that are relatively new and relevant to the particular user set that you're, 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 you're talking to. So that has to be scientifically driven, meaning the effort that you put into creating a manual step has to prove with some kind of reply rate, you know, ROI, if you, if, if, if it makes sense. 
Um, so outreach is the only tool that allows you both the, the entire full suite of automation and the ability to sort of measure the, the, the manual steps as part of your cadence. Yep. I know it's kind of long-winded, but you know, I get excited when I talk no, about it. No, totally makes sense. And I, I think for marketers, this is especially exciting because marketers are so used to using, you know, uh, email autoresponder. So this is exactly like an email autoresponder, but just for outbound purposes where you can A-B test, every, you know, everything's crystal clear. And, um, you know, you, you just have that automation. You're putting, the, putting people through the funnel over and over until they respond. So, um, again, for me, I mean, I've tried the other tools out there. There's nothing out there um, like this. I mean, it is, it is a crowded space. So I think that is the differentiator, right? The fact yeah. that um, you guys have, you know, these, these features. And it's getting, and it's, and the interesting thing is getting more crowded by the day. There is, um, when, I, when, uh, when I was at Saster, um, after I met you, um, a guy came up to me and said, are you, are you, are you from Outreach? And I was like, yeah. I was like, uh, hi, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm about to compete with you. Oh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, welcome to the space. <laughs> what company was that? Uh, Celogy. Ah, got it. Cool. So, wow, that's, that's amazing. I didn't even know there's, there's more players in this space. Okay. Well, cool. It, you know, I mean, my, my, uh, my testimonial is, you know, you guys are clearly ahead and I've tried the other one. So, um, Good job there. So, you know, I wanted to ask you a question. I mean, you have an MBA from Harvard and, you know, a lot of people, you know, the Mark Cubans of the world, the Valley, they're like, yeah, you don't need an MBA, blah, blah, blah. So how has that MBA, especially from Harvard, helped out? Um, it has it has helped out in, in more ways than sort of what meets the eye. So, um, I mean, the reason why you go to, um, a, you know, a, a, a very good you know, business school is not so much because of the knowledge per se. I mean, you will have access to top, you know, top, top quality faculty and you will have, you know, a lot of exposure to other things that you may be interested in. But at the end of the day, you go there because it's a self-selecting pool of really interesting people. Mm -hmm. um, um, my class had, uh, you know, not only, you know, bankers and consultants, just like any other class does, but he had a mayor of an Indian city. Wow. Uh, I thought I said city in India. He had, um, he had a, a you know a politician from Egypt. He had it just had a number of very very fascinating people that um, that sort of give you a broader perspective in the world. Um, the second thing is that um, Harvard in particular sort of like it takes a particular approach to to the way that they teach, meaning that they put a lot of emphasis in leadership. And I know leadership sounds like a big you know kind of like wishy washy kind of word, but um, but they do put a lot of work into like, you know, how do you, how do you lead teams kind of like, you know, what incentives look like and a lot of things that are, you know, sometimes overseen as part of the core curriculum in a, in an MBA program. So I think that the most important takeaway from, from, from going to HBS was, was sort of the connections and the experience of being there among very, very smart people. Uh, it gives you sort of a, a degree of humility that is hard to grasp you know, outside of that environment, if, if it makes sense. Got it. Cool. So it, it really is, I, I think it's the quality of the people on the network that really opens things up for you, right? That's exactly, that's precisely right. That is precisely right. Okay. It kind of reminds me of the, the Saster conference where I've actually never been to a conference where the quality of attendees was so high. Um, so something it similar to that. ridiculously high. Like I felt like I was among brethren. And like, I wish that the conference was three days just so that I can get to talk to every single person in that room. It was it was unbelievable. Like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, props to to Max Alshuler and and Jason for for putting it together. It was awesome. Yeah, just so the audience knows, you you guys should all go next year. I think it's going to be in either in March or February, whatever yeah. it is exactly. But um, yeah, that's not to be missed. Um, you know, I was actually writing a, a little post that I'm it's, it's been delayed, but I was writing a little post how I actually met my you know my competition in in, in flesh and bone there. So 
Um, I met Daniel Barber from Tout and, you know, we chatted and exchanged views on the market. I met, um, I met Puyan from, um, from Persist. Um, and I met Kyle from Salesloft and, you know, and, and, and these are, you know, real people with real problems and we're all in the same boat. And, you know, I mean, like we're all trying to make the, the category a category, you know, I mean, sales automation is still kind of nascent and it's, and it's, and, and it's, and it's very infant. So, and at the end of the day, we're all trying to sort of help the same customer type. You know, we're all here to, to help the salesperson be better. Um, each of us has a different approach to it. Um, you know, Kyle is a very, you know, very smooth and very successful salesperson. And, you know, he's very respected in the sales community. And Tout has just been around for a while. So, you know, to see what each brings to the table was very, very interesting and telling. And, and sort of we'll, we'll also sort of give you a forecast on how, you know, the tools will evolve going forward. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I was kind of blown away from it. I mean, you walked by and, and we just met, I mean, that's totally random and we walked by, people are talking about churn. So yeah, I think it's, it's good learnings for everyone. I mean, uh, you know, you're getting ideas even from the competition too. So that's amazing. How often does that happen? Right? Exactly. 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 Right. So, you know, backtracking a little bit to kind of the, the beginning of outreach. I mean, you know, can you tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Oh, yeah. So unequivocally, the biggest struggle was getting reply detection right. So, and that's a technical challenge. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of, you know, try to make it not as boring, but the sure. uh, reply detection is, um, is a bit of a challenge because, they, so there's two ways to do it. You can do it the way, yes, we're in sort of tout do it, which is, you know, you, you have to rely on a pixel being open for you to detect the email, you know, coming back to you. The other way to do it is, and, and there, you know, there's some shortcomings in the way you do that because sometimes the pixel doesn't get open, and and if it doesn't get open, then you don't detect the reply, etc. And, and you know, the, the browsers, especially Gmail, is getting very, very aggressive around not displaying images, and that sort of prevents the pixel to sort of trigger. The other way to do this is to actually go to the server, meaning you authenticate into your server with outreach, the same way you would use your phone to authenticate. And that's what it was really hard in general for us, because. Um, email uses a protocol called IMAP, and IMAP has been around forever. It's as, probably as old as the internet, the, uh, the email protocol. And Gmail has taken it in one direction, and then Microsoft Exchange with Outlook has taken it into a different, completely different direction, creating in, in what it is, it's actually two different protocols. And the problem with, G, with the IMAP uh, protocol is that it's asynchronous, meaning it's IMAP, email itself is a document with a header, a footer, and bodies, and a bunch of other, like, uh, so, um, you know, uh, header information that can come to you in any order. So it's not that you can, you know, open up a, you know, in raw form, you can open up an email and the email will always display the same way that it was the way it displays in your, in your, um, in your email, in your email client mm. for to a computer, it will look like a bunch of stuff that just came in randomly. So for you to interpret that email and recognize that email as a reply to a previous email, you have to be able to parse it relatively quickly without getting confused on what the header or footer information is. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's sort of the basic, basic challenge of reply detection. Kind of makes sense. I don't have a technical background, but I kind of get what you're saying. So at least if, if a non-technical guy kind of gets what you're, get, what you're getting at, then I think it's okay. Awesome. So the, that's, that was our, so it took us about you know, six months to get that to work just right. And we had to code it three times. So the first time we... We tried to, you know, assume that all the emails are the same. That was wrong. The second time, we assumed that the emails weren't the same, and that got us a little further ahead. But then the third part, the third piece was that email encoding, meaning the the character character in the emails itself that determines whether this is a reply or not, changes from one service to the other, and that took us a while to sort of get to get get right. So now, 
we are probably the only service out there with, you know, with the pro- probable exception of Relate IQ that mm. has, you know, we probably miss one out of, you know, 5,000 replies in terms wow. of like, reply detection. Um, and, uh, you know, it gets, it gets better every time we, we, we catch another one that, that gets through. So what about the industry average? I mean, okay, you guys are one out of 5,000, right? What, what is the typical average for the other guys? Um, I don't know, to be, to be frank. We like to estimate that the other guys are missing about 10 to 20% of the replies. Huh. And that's mostly because whenever we have an account that we're trying to land and they're using either yes or tout, the main complaint is that, is that they're not able to automate follow-ups because the follow-ups are liable to slip through the cracks. Um, and, you know, follow-up automation is one of those things that you either do it or you don't. You know what I mean? There's no such thing as, you know, halfway automation. Because if you have to check emails to see if they reply or not, then you have to check every single email to check if they reply or not. You see what I mean? Yeah. And that prevents you from scaling. And that's I hate of, that. Yeah, exactly. Because you never know whether the reply was caught or not. And that's just like, that gives you an uneasy feeling in your stomach that, you know, it's just not cool. Got it. Okay. So I, now, now, now I, I definitely understand. I mean, it's, it's, you guys are ahead or it seems that you, know, you guys have this automation down because it, you know, it sounds like you guys have beaten the technical challenge. Um, you guys are ahead of, ahead of the curve there. So my question would be in terms of, you know, hiring a technical team, I mean, you know, what, what are some secrets you can share around, you know, building such a strong team? Um, I think the first, the first secret is that our co-founders are, are developers. So we have four co-founders out of which two are developers. And the other one is Andrew, who is our product guy. And he understands development to a, you know, a very deep level. And I'm a former developer, so I can sort of get what they're doing. So I think that's sort of the, the, the DNA of a company is made of the co-founders. You see what I mean? So you can see the companies are sort of an extension of what the co-founder is. If you look at, if you look at Salesforce, for instance, Salesforce it, it, it cadence is that is you can, you can, you can potentially say that it's sort of like an outgrowth of Kyle. You see what I mean? Like, it involves everything that a salesperson is supposed to be doing, mostly because he has a process down in his head mm-hmm. and he's just putting it out in software. You see what I mean? Interesting. Whereas for us, you know, you know, we bit the technical challenge first because that's the kind of people we are. And we got it down pat to, into a level in which you can now ram, you know, 10,000 leads and, you know, we'll miss one reply out of the entire set. Um, you see what I mean? So that's, that was kind of like the, the impetus for that drive that makes us different. Okay. Now, do you think, okay, so, I mean, you know, you guys are technical, all technical to a point. So my, my question to you would be, you know, for any type of co-founders, you know, how technical should they get, you know, where should they stop learning? Um, and then, you know, focus on the other areas. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, um, I would say that my, so let me, th- let me take a detour before I answer that question. So my second MBA was, was, was when I work at Amazon. So I was one of the first few employees in a, in a group called Amazon web services. Nice. Um, and back then when the cloud was not a thing, but it was a crazy idea that Bezos had that, you know, people, he, he was getting panned by the press. The press was telling him to stick to, to stick to books and DVDs and, and toys and things like that. And, you know, this, this cloud services is, is crazy talk. So it was a very small group and, um, that reported directly to Bezos on a weekly basis. And, you know, we will go up and talk to him about challenges around, um, you know, scalability and elastic search and, and race conditions in this particular part of the, the problem. And what I notice is that, you know, if, if you think that Bezos is a great CEO, um, the way that he manages his team is he had a deep understanding of the details of a problem. So he never glossed over of like, you know, what is working, what isn't working. He had 
whenever there was a problem that was significant enough for, for the company, he would have the engineering team working on that problem to re report directly to him until the problem was solved. And he wanted to know the specific details as to the way that they were architecting the software to solve that particular problem. So to answer your question, I think that if you, I think part of leadership is to be both um, detail-oriented without being micromanager, but you have to understand the details. You have to understand what makes your customers tick. You have to make it, you have to understand, you know, what makes your software tick and you have to understand what makes your team tick. And then you have to understand the strategy overall. You see what I mean? So it's not easy, but you have to do it. Got it. Now, my understanding is Bezos was, did not have an engineering background. Is that wrong? That is absolutely right. He did not have an engineering background. Huh. Okay. But he had, but he had, um, he was a trader. And one of the interesting things about Bezos is that he, um, his decisions look very much like a buy or sell decision. So for him, a no decision on us on a, on a, on an open item was a sell decision. You see, what I mean, you're never, you know, buying or you're, you're never not doing anything. You're always buying or selling. You're, you're either pro or con. So not executing on something, that means that whatever that something is happening is right and you're betting on it. You see what I mean? Got it. So um, it's a really different mindset when, you know, in terms of like leadership, but you have to be able to, especially in tech and especially in, in high growth companies, you have to be able to understand both the details of your software and the details of your customers. Okay. Makes sense. That's helpful. Um, okay. So, you know, was there one of the questions I had, you know, was there a point in time where the company was on the brink of failure? Um, not on the, I mean, I mean, we're all on the brink of failure at some point, right? Especially when we were small. Um, I'm, um, I'm a huge fan of, um, of, uh, Nassim Taleb. And I don't know if you read his book, Antifragile or, or his, his previous ones, the, the Black Swan. I have not. Um, but one of the things that he, one of the points that he makes is that when you're really small, um, sort of, you know, these higher risks actually make you stronger. So you're never in the brink of failure, if you will. You see what I mean? Like, you know, you know, we had to raise from angels last year and that took a while and, and, you know, it felt, you know, a little weird sometimes and it felt a little scary sometimes because, you know, we never know whether, you know, whether we're going to get funding and we're still working on reply detection and the product is not out because we're still working on reply detection and I have to go out and talk to more angels to get a bit more money. But then it gets, you know, then you learn how to do it well and then it doesn't become a problem anymore and then it becomes the thing that you do, you know what I mean? So um, when you're small and you're scrappy and you sort of have an eye on the, on the goal, you're never in the brink of failure per se. Um, if you're not solving a customer problem, that's a different story, right? But if you are convinced that you're solving a, a big problem and you're, you know, bent to solve it, um, you'll find a way around, you know, quote unquote failure and you'll move forward. Okay. And if that, if that sort of made sense. So you talked about, you know, taking a little more, you know, talk, talk about taking big risks when you're small and things like that. I mean, can you give us an example? Um, yeah. So when we, and, and again, it goes back to the reply detection. So we, you know, we went out and we coded the platform and, and reply detection was kind of working. And, and, you know, we, we, we signed up a few test customers and, it, you know, it, it worked kind of sometimes and sometimes it didn't work. And then Gordon, our co-founder, came in and, and was like, look, guys, we're not going to be able to fix it unless we step back and recode the whole thing from scratch. And that's going to take two months. Wow. And, and we, we barely had two months of runway at that point. And, and we're like, all right, let's do it. So we pulled the product from, from, from beta testers and we're like, sorry, guys, um, we need to make a major improvement here. So, you know, we'll get back to you in two months. That was pretty scary. 
But um, if you, you know, if you have a, a, a solid team that sort of, you know, that trusts each other and, and you believe that, you know, what Gordon say who was going to do was going to work out just right, you sort of go with it. And then, you, you know, as a, as a CEO, your job is to make sure that the team is funded and fed and happy and looking in the same direction. Okay, so I'm struggling to understand this, right? So you had uh, you had you had to shut the product down for two months, and you had two months of runway left. So you have two months to you know rebuild it, and then at the two months mark, I mean, you know, I, did you just magically like turn the switch on, and then like uh, you know re- you know cash flow started flowing again? Like what happened exactly? No, no. So you continue. I mean, the moment you make that decision, you continue to fundraise. So we were you know we were sort of rolling fundraising, talking to angels, fundraising a little bit, talking to angels, fundraising a little bit, just keeping a few months ahead of payroll. Mm. You know what I mean? Um. It's very, it's very relatively straightforward to, you know, you know, get angel money here in, 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 in Silicon Valley. So, so you do it and you keep the, you keep the, the company, you keep the company sort of funded. Um, but you tell everybody that you have a particular goal in mind, right? So you fundraise and you say, look, you guys, you know, product is ready, you know, commercially available. We're going to start getting customers and going to show you a distraction. All of a sudden you have to go back and be like, no, product was not ready and it's not commercially available. And by the way, um, can you write us another check? <laughs> so did you tell the team, I mean, were you like, hey, guys, like we need to redo the product, but there's only two months of cash in the bank? Or did you keep the two months of cash in the bank to yourselves as co-founders? No, you you sort of keep, I mean, no, you, you I, I'm a big fan of disclosure. So I told, I, you know, we all knew where we stand in our cash position. But on the other hand, like, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly, you know, good time to be fundraising. So... I, we were never sort of afraid that we're going to be running out of cash. It, it, worst comes to worst, we just take a solid, you know, a bit of a salary cut and carry on. So it wasn't again when you're small and you're nimble, you can take you know this kind of you, this kind of risks don't impact you as much. You know, if we had a hundred people company and we had two months of runway mm. and we don't have product market fit, you're screwed. You see what I mean? Yep. But if you have you know five people in the company and you are you have product market, you have product market fit, but you don't know, but you have, but your product is not quite there yet. You know what I mean? And that's the beauty of having, you know, a bunch of perfectionists in the room is that, you know, it's not going to be there and our customers are not going to be super excited about, you know what I mean? And that's a word that we use a lot. You know, the, you don't, we don't want happy customers. We want excited customers. So the reply detection is not quite working the way we think. And if we think that there's a better way to do it. We're going to go ahead and buy that bullet. And, and that was sort of a big decision, right? So, you know, let's go back. Let's retool. It's, a, it's not even a, fee, um, a customer-facing feature. You know what I mean? Like reply detection, is something, it's not something you come and see and be like, wow, look how pretty your reply detection is. No, it's something that sort of lives with you. So we took that risk and I just, you know, at that point we're like, all right, guys, you know, I'll be back in two months with, you know, you know, cash. You know what I mean? So let's continue doing what we're doing and it's going to be all right. Cool. Yeah. You know, there's not one moment where I feel like you would be scared in a situation like that. And I think, you know, some, some, in, in some situations, a lot of co-founders would be freaking out. So I think that's, uh, that's one thing I, I've kind of noticed just from your demeanor. Yeah. Well, I sound a lot more secure. <laughs> cool. All right. So what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25 year old self? Um, that's a really good question. Surround yourself with good people would be my my one good piece of advice is start, start looking for potential co-founders early in your career. Um, when I was 25 years old, where was I when I was 25 years old? I was fresh from earning um, um, a, a master's in computer science and sort of you know decided to take a turn and go to banking for a while and sort of chase the money and the glamour of your know, New York City and the banking life. Um, I would have told myself, you know, 
don't fall for that. You're not one of them. You're a technologist. You thrive in, in, in building product and being surrounded by very passionate people. Go for that. Um, so finding yourself instead of chasing the glitter and the glamour is, is, you know, very important when you're in that age. I like that. You know, that's something I really noticed. I mean, especially, uh, growing up in an Asian community, it's, it's all about making money and becoming a doctor or doing finance or being a lawyer. So I can totally see where that is. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was, I was always concerned doing something my parents would be proud about. And, mm. you know, when I started my company, my parents <laughs> didn't even know what I did. So, yeah. I know how that feels. Um, cool, man. So what's one productivity hack you can share with the audience? Um, let me think. I, I think, I, I think follow up, following up on the spot is a productivity hack that, so instead of setting yourself calendar reminders, figure out a way to set, um, you know, figure, figure out a way for you to do the follow up when, 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 when it's hot and it's in your hand. Um, I've never seen calendar reminders work well when you're trying to do a follow-up. So either, you know, book a time in the day to follow up on your emails or get yourself a tool like Outreach or, or you know, Self-Loft or, or Tout or any of those to, to follow up on your emails. The, 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 the conversion on a follow-up email is like three times as high as, you know, one, one email, even when, the inbound, when it's an inbound or an intro or, or, or somebody you actually know. And that's just because people are busy and your inbox starts looking more like Twitter than, you know, than a proper inbox. Right. And you guys so. have some numbers around that, right? I think your, um, Andrew from, from your team said, uh, you know, it takes what, at least six follow-ups. Yeah. So it takes, and we have seen that five to six, so in between five to six follow-ups to get the proper reply rate. So even, so, you know, anecdotally, um, we, we get, a, I get a lot of interest, right? Because people know me and they were like, oh, you should try it out with Channel the founder, you know, talk, talk to him. So I get a lot of interest like that. And the moment I get a, an intro from somebody, from a, a warm handover from somebody that I know, it still takes about four touches to get about 75 reply rates. Four touches. And these are people who are introducing me, introducing me warm to somebody they know. Um, and it still takes a while. So, you know, you can only extrapolate on how, you know, it's how worse it starts getting um, for people that you know less and people who are you going cold. Wow. So you put them right into a funnel of when that happens, right? Because it's happening so much now, right? Exactly. Everybody goes into, everybody goes into a sequence because otherwise, you know, we're all liable to forget. Got it. Okay. That's awesome. Um, okay. What's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone? Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a great question. Um, Mike Weinberg. Uh, I forget the book that he wrote. But I do remember his name. Okay. Uh, let me look him up real quick. The thing is, um, it was a it was it was it was a sales book um, that sort of changed my changed my like my life on how I how I think about sales. And one of the things that he mentioned in the book, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Mike Wanger. I'm gonna have to look it up. Um, um, is that, you know, when you are, when you are pitching somebody, like if you really believe in your product and you really believe that you're solving a problem, whenever you talk to a customer on the phone, you know, be it cold or be in from an appointment that you're setting, you know, the mindset that you need to be is be a doctor. Um, you're coming in to diagnose and to see if you can help and how you can help and sort of prescribe the right medicine. And that has, that changes, you know, I'm not an, I don't think I'm a natural sales salesperson, but I do think that I'm a natural, you know, I'm naturally good at helping people. And that alone has carried the day in terms of like, you know, helping me, you know, get my mind around sales and, and being a good salesperson. Okay. Is that book called uh, New Sales Simplified? Exactly. Yep. That one. 
Okay, got it. That's a five star. I mean, five star average. It's not even four point five stars. So one hundred ninety nine customer reviews, five stars. We'll put that in the show notes. But great recommendation. I just uh, bought it with one click right now. <laughs> it is. It is old school, and it was written God knows how long ago. But it is as true as it comes. It is. It was refreshing. Perfect. And- yeah, I love it. I love this. It looks interesting. It says 2012, so I'm assuming that they're just refreshing it every now and then? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I think the book, I mean, the book itself was written long, longer than that. Got it. Okay. So, Manny, what's the best way for people to find you online? Um, find me on you know, either LinkedIn or Twitter. It's the easiest way to, to get a hold of me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a media, I'm not a sort of like a social media junkie, but I do, I, I'm yeah, pretty responsive. Or Manny at Outreach. Outreach.io, right? Yeah, I'll reach out. Yeah. All right, perfect. Manny, thanks so much for joining us. I think there's a lot of insight, and I think a lot of people are going to be uh, testing sales automation in the coming years. So um, definitely, everyone, um, there's a free trial for outreach. Make sure you check it out, um, especially if you're a marketer um, or a salesperson. You have to check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Eric. All right, thanks, Manny. Right. Bye. How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text bad hire, spell it out, B-A-D-H-I-R-E to 33444. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.